Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. Hi, road to growth listeners. Today, we got Chris Noggle. Chris, so you were a ex-pro snowboarder, also entrepreneur. You were doing the entrepreneur lifestyle, I guess, at that time, got into financial advising, a man of, of many hats. Is that kind of a, the best way to describe you? Probably an easy way to sum it up. Yeah, I've done a, a lot of things over the period. I mean, I'm not a young guy anymore. I'm 43 now. So, you know, this whole journey started really, my first company was when I was 16 and the pro snowboarding started when I was 19. So you can see I've got a, a long runway that uh, all, all this stuff happened in. Yeah, I mean, relative, right? I mean, 43, I mean, it's not a young guy. Some people, that's that could be very young. So I think uh, I feel great. I'm, I feel young, <laughs> but, you know, to a lot of people like, oh, you're not that young anymore. No. So what's your passion now? Your passion is basically teaching, right? Giving back? Yeah, so cool? I do a lot of give back. Uh, everything we do, we do, you know, to help other people solve their money problem. Uh, I've got the nickname and it's not self-proclaimed, but uh, I just kind of called the America's number one money mentor. Uh, we help thousands and thousands, actually tens of thousands of people solve their money problem by putting them back in control of their money. What, I mean, there's so many classes or so many coaches or so <laughs> many people out there. And this is a question when I get someone that's kind of in this sector, I mean, what do you think separates you from all the other people out there? There's really not a lot of people doing what I'm doing. There's a lot of people out there, you know, teaching stocks and options. And there's a lot of people out there teaching private money and different things. And there's some crossover in what I teach and how I do it from them. But we're not selling some course. You know, I don't have some digital course that I'm trying to push people into or some product. I mean, we're what we do is we teach people what the wealthy do. And it's been on my long journey and all the different times that I've failed, I've learned. And, and also coming from a financial advisor capacity, I was a, an advisor at a high, high level for 16 years until I retired and sold my practice in 2018. So I've seen both sides. I've seen in the trenches. And then after that, I've seen what the wealthy do by surrounding myself around multimillionaires and billionaires, what the wealthy do with money and the difference between what the wealthy do and what I used to do as an advisor is so drastically different. So what I teach is definitely very, very different than what other people teach. And primarily because what I teach, there's no money in it. So most people don't want to do what I do because they can't figure out how to make a living doing it. Well, the money's three, four layers deep. That's what I figured out. So what's your, I mean, in essence, can you walk us through what your, is it classes? Is it consistent, like weekly meetings? I mean, what's the, the program? What's the, uh, that you offer? Sure. It's easy. It's uh, It all starts with people usually will end at my website. And from there, they'll watch one of the many videos that we have on there for free. And every week we do a free wealth webinar, which I just finished a little bit ago. Uh, every Wednesday at one o'clock, we do this free wealth webinar, giving people knowledge. And then from there, people can figure out what direction they want to go or what their money problem is that they need solved. I mean, maybe they've got a lot of debt that they want to pay off and we have you know different programs for that. Or maybe they're looking to do what the wealthy do with private banking and we have different stuff for that but 
whatever path they choose, the most somebody technically will ever spend directly with us would be to come to one of my masterminds. And the most expensive one is just under five grand at my house called The Experience. But everything else is really, I gotta say, most everything is free. I mean, we have like a $297 three-day workshop that we do, but you know, that's not the highlight. So it's very difficult for me to sit there and say, where do I point people? Because not, not one person's problem is the same as the next. Everybody has a different money problem. Is I know you had multiple businesses. We're going to get into your history of kind of where you came from. Is this, it, it doesn't sound like, I mean, of course, maybe the, the mastermind, there's a financial that, I mean, that you get out of it, but most of it's basically, I guess, giving back in, the, in a sense. Yeah, I've been fortunate, you know, on my journey. I've done very well. Me and my wife, uh, you know, flipped hundreds of houses. We had a TV show pilot on HGTV. And then um, what I learned on that journey is I was borrowing significant amounts of money for all these flips. And I was always borrowing from other people's banks, private lenders, private investors, hard money lenders, and conventional or community banks. And through this journey, I started working with the people that I was borrowing money from and I started learning banking, simple banking. And a lot of people think they understand banking, but very, very few people understand how banks actually operate. So what we started doing is then becoming the bank. As my hat says, BYOB, be your own bank. We started learning how to apply what banks do every day with your deposits that you leave there. And we've then duplicated that and started doing it. Now, we didn't come up with this. This has been around for hundreds of years. We literally just took what banks do and what the wealthy do and brought it down so that the average person can use it, benefit from from it for things like, you know, one of the big topics we teach that people love, and there's no cost to learn this either, but it's how to get all the money back for every single car you will ever buy, buy drive and own. Uh, people love that. Everybody loves cars and nobody knows how to get all the money back for the cars that they buy, drive and own. So we show them how to do it by just changing one thing that they're doing now. And that one thing is where their money goes first. So it's just simple techniques like that. And again, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to dance around it. I just, to say, hey, what is it that you do? Well, we do a lot of things, but the simplest core to what we do is we solve people's money problem by putting them back in control of their money. The one thing that everybody has been taught not to do, and that is most people have been completely taught to give up control of their money. They put it in banks, they put it in Wall Street, put it in 401ks. And in doing that, you're putting somebody else in control of your financial future. So when you say getting all the money back out of your car, are you saying getting the usage of that car or are no, you no, saying no. basically nope. the money you spent in that car, you get that back? Well, let's easiest way. Let's say you buy a car for $10,000, okay? Or 20,000 or 50. I don't care what your flavor of car is, but you buy a car and by changing just one thing and that's where your money went first. And then by practicing simple banking strategies, we can show you how after five years or whatever term you want, could be three years, six years, you pick and choose when you're the bank you set the terms. We'll show you how at the end of that term, you'll have all the money back for that car. And everybody wants to think that this is some magic thing or some, you know, it, it's so simple. Most people buy cars one of three ways. They pay cash for the car. Okay. And in, in, in doing that, they exchange the money that they've saved over the last couple of years for this depreciating vehicle called an automobile. And then they drive that vehicle and they gave up control of that money and that transaction and that money lost its earning potential. 
Second way people buy cars is they finance a car through the bank or the car dealerships finance company. So they'll go to the dealership, buy the car, and they'll exchange monthly payments for the right to drive that car for a specified period of time. At the end of that time, they owned the car, but they gave up interest and principal payments to the bank. And the third way, well, there's technically four ways. The third way would be lease the car. You're just renting the car. And then the fourth way is you could steal the car. You know, but we don't teach anything about that. And I hope none of you are stealing cars, but it is a way to acquire a car nonetheless. So what we do is we combine one and two and we just say, all right, listen, if you're going to pay cash for a car, well, the one thing you give up in paying cash for a car is you give up the earning potential and the money you paid for the car. Sure, you don't have a monthly payment, but you still gave something up in doing that. What is the future value of that money you gave up? probably pretty significant. Plus you bought one of the worst investments, which is a vehicle because it depreciates. So if we just change one thing and we change where that money goes first, and then from there we pay cash for the car. Uh, and I'm not going to get too deep into this right now because I don't want to blow the whole show on just this one technique. But if we change where the money goes, there is a way and a place where you can put your money and you can earn uninterrupted compound interest. In other words, I can take the money that I saved up for the car, let's just you know, take, pretend this is whatever your value of your car is. I can put it over here in this account. And then I can take that money back out of that account and buy the car. But in doing that, when I took the money out, I never stopped earning interest and dividends on every penny of that money that I put in. So the money I put in is earning interest and dividends. But when I take it out, I don't lose that interest and dividends that I'm earning. So now I'm holding money that I'm still making money on. And then I pay cash for the car, but one step's different. You have to treat your money the same as you treat the bank's money. In other words, if you were to have financed that vehicle, you would have made a monthly payment every single month. Or if you leased it, you would have made a monthly payment. So if you're already used to making monthly payments and you paid for this car, we'll take the same monthly payment you would have given the dealership, let's call it $100, and take that $100 and put it back into the account where the money came back. What you just did is you recycled and recaptured all the interest you would have given away to somebody else's bank. And that money just goes into your bank where it then continues to compound and earn interest. The one thing I, I can't believe more people don't understand, and, and this is something that uh, really boggles my mind. I haven't really come to the full conclusion of how and why we don't know this. We think we do, but we don't, is a simple thing that Albert Einstein talked about all the time called compound interest. He said that compound interest, specifically uninterrupted compound interest, is the most powerful thing in the financial universe. And he says, those that understand it, earn it. Those that don't pay it. Well, the average American and probably the average person in the world, it spends more time paying interest than they do earning. Because the only way they know how to earn interest or compound interest on their money is to take their hard-earned dollars, the money that they went out and worked and traded hours for, put it somewhere and just leave it sit. And when you do that, you're number one, you're giving up control because it's in somebody else's control, wherever it is that it's earning interest. But number two, the second thing you did is you just gave away your best dollars, your most valuable dollars, which are today's dollars, because the money you make today will never be worth more than it is today because of inflation and lots of other factors. But when we put it somewhere and we just leave it sit, it's already losing to inflation. So if you're not moving your money and, and using that money, it's very difficult for that money to grow to the levels you want it to. And it's very difficult for you to crack that, uh, that wealth code, if you will, and get where you want to be. If you're listening to the podcast right now, um, uh, Chris has been using uh, two crisp $100 bills to kind of show this. <laughs> do, you, do you have those, uh, those $100 bills just 
there all the time for like podcasts and events. Okay. I'm very visual. No, I'm, okay. I'm super visual. So I keep a couple, yeah, and they are mighty crisp. I keep a couple hundred dollar bills uh, so that I can actually show the flow of money because, you know, I've grown up and, uh, you know, we haven't gotten my story, but I grew up in a very lower, lower, lower middle-class family and uh, didn't really have money. So every time I thought about money or wanted something that money would buy, I drew it and I was always very visual. So yeah. when I, when I teach and when I explain things, it's easy for me to have these hundreds. So I visually can actually show people the flow of money. Well, talking about that. So you had vision boards, like in essence, growing up, where did that come from? Uh, it came from my mother. So I grew up in a lower middle-class family and my dad was an alcoholic. He wasn't around a lot. And my mom raised me and even though, uh, you know, she wanted me to have the things she couldn't afford to give me the things that I wanted. Like, you know, if I wanted a skateboard or a BMX, I couldn't just say, Hey mom, like, can I have a skateboard? Oh, sure. Let's go to the skateboard shop and get you a board. No, it didn't work that way. But what she always taught me is when I wanted something, she would teach me to draw it. I was always a you know, kid that loved to draw. I spent a lot of time as a child, just drawing cartoons and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, so I would draw pictures of skateboarders, you know, and I'd grab a thrasher magazine or a skateboarder magazine. I would just draw pictures of Christian Asoy and all the old greats. And then I started then not drawing other people. I would actually draw me. And I had cartoon characters, which resembled who I thought I was. And I would draw myself in the act of doing that, whether it was a skateboard, a, a BMX, a dirt bike, a later snowboarding. And this went on for a very long period of time. So when I did this, I didn't know it back then. I was just a kid, right? I just drew this stuff. I'd go to school. I'd draw it on my notebooks. But it, I was practicing a universal law in doing this, something that you know Napoleon Hill talks about, Jesus talked about in the Bible. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many different places this is talked about. But if you dream things, and you envision them and you highly focus on them nonstop over and over and over again, it has to happen. And that's just kind of how I've gotten a lot of the things that I have is just intently focusing on them, never giving up on those dreams and just continually working toward them little steps at a time. And the little steps at a time, I used to have this as a visual. It's a little black box with a little slide top. It's wooden. My mom gave it to me when I was a kid. And I would go cut lawn around the yard, go across the street and clean out horse stalls for my neighbor. And They'd give me five bucks here, two bucks there, 10 bucks here. And I'd put them all in this little box. And my mom always said that, you know, when you want something, just go, you know, work for it and then put that money in here. Don't ever touch it. And then eventually you'll save enough to have it. And that's exactly how I got everything. And, you know, there's a cool story that I don't ever really talk about live about a dirt bike. I was so infatuated with having this KX60 dirt bike that for years of my life, for years, I would cut pictures out. You know, like we're talking vision board stuff. I didn't know what a vision board was. I just knew that this is the dirt bike I wanted. I would focus on it. I would travel around with it in my school backpack. And year after year, I would keep saving up. And then I got a job at this little restaurant, uh, cleaning out garbages and everything called Widewaters. And what my mom would do is she said, every time you get paid, just give me the money and I'll put it in that little box. And when you have enough to buy the dirt bike, we'll go get it. Now, I didn't really think anything of it. I wasn't counting change, but I would go to work. I'd get the paycheck, give it to mom. And I remember one day she said, hey, let's go to Hebler's. It was a dirt bike shop. And let's look at that dirt bike. Now, from that point, from when it was a KX60, now I was big enough to have a 125. So I test drove the dirt bikes, two of them. And, you know, she's like, well, which one do you like? I'm like, oh, my God, I really love the Kawasaki. And, you know, in my mind, I was just like, oh, this would be so awesome to have it, but I can't have this. You know, I was from that mindset of like, you know, I want this, but. I can't have this. And my mom said to me, she said, well, what if you could have that right now? And I said, 
what do you mean, mom? Like, you can't afford this. We, we, we can't afford this dirt bike. And she said, yes, you can. You've saved enough money. It was my very first brand new, like, thing that I'd really ever had outside of clothes and shoes. Uh, but I'm just talking about this because that's the practice th that I was taught when I was a young child. I dreamt it. I kept focused on it. I stayed true to working toward it. And eventually all those things just happened. How old are you at that time? Oh, my gosh. 10, 11, I don't know, maybe 12. So once the, that realization of the, the vision came about, right? Did you go back to the, to the bedroom and start drawing other things or what happened? Of course, next? Of course man. Cause the next thing you got to have, when you got a dirt bike, what's the next thing you need? You need a dirt bike track. So, you know, I, I was fortunate to grow up in the town and we had almost two acres. So the next thing I was going to do is I had a, a BMX track that I had built in the back, but in little jumps, I had to save up enough money to buy a couple dump truck loads of clay. And then my next big goal was I'm going to build a dirt bike track. And then after that dirt bike track, well, then you got to have the mini ramp out there for the skateboard. And then after that, it was, I, we put a fort in the middle of the dirt bike track where me and my friends on a day where we'd be riding the dirt bikes or skateboarding, we had a place to go hang out. And then came the trampoline. So all these different things materialized from that one goal, because now I had that goal. And then from there, it just, everything perpetuates. So at a young age, you're the visualization, the savings, and then purchasing. When, and I know we've talked, well, we haven't really jumped into it, but you started a couple different businesses throughout your life. Right. When did you start actually starting your own business to kind of incorporate these things instead of getting money from, I guess, other people and yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I was 16. So up till I was 16, I'd worked on my friend's dad's farm, uh, picking, you know, different crops and, you know, cleaning up pig, pig pens. And literally that's what I did. And at 16, you know, I did what most 16 year olds did. And I think they still do today is I got a job at a restaurant. It's the only person that would hire a 16 year old. And my mom would drop me off. It was called the Flippos. They're no longer in business. And I, w I started working there, but the problem was unlike all my other jobs where I had bosses that were friendly and like kind of encouraged me and always talked positively. I was talked down to, I was literally degraded at this place. I every, it got to the point months in where every day I went to work, I was scared to go to work. I was scared of what, you know, I was going to do wrong. Everything I did, I did wrong. And I was probably clinically depressed at this job. And I'll never forget the day, literally like it's hell dude, I. I remember every aspect of it. There was a cooler. And every time when I'd come into work, the first thing I was to do was go in the cooler and do inventory. And I remember I went in the cooler and I'm doing it. And immediately, as soon as I'm in there, you know, he calls me out and I'm not going to use his name, but he calls me out and he's yelling at me about something I didn't do the day before. And I remember at that moment, at, at something snapped inside me and I said, I quit. I quit right then and there. And that moment was literally the moment when I quit in my mind and in my heart, I quit trading hours for dollars. Came home to my mom and I said, mom, I said, you're going to be really mad. I, I quit my job. And then I said, but I want to open a clothing line in the basement. I'm going to call it Fat Clothing Company. I'd been thinking this thing up for a while. Now, at this point, I was skateboarding and snowboarding a lot and getting pretty good at snowboarding. So I had seen some of the snowboard companies and I had studied how these companies have branded themselves and their, their team riders. And I wanted that. So I said, all right, I'm going to do this. And I had an art teacher in middle school. Uh, yeah, that would, holy crap, that was middle school. It's so insane. Was, I think it was middle school or had to be middle school because of Mr. Mahalski. And uh, we used to, he printed t-shirts after school for the school. He made all their, you know, t-shirts for the sports teams. And I said, Mr. Mahalski, can you teach me how to screen print? 
And I was a you know, really good artist, so I loved his class. And we started printing T-shirts after school. And one day I came in with this graphic that I wanted to put on a T-shirt. And I bought 12 shirts. I ordered them from this place online. And or not online, but like back then it wasn't online. It was mail order, right? So you got a brochure. So you call and they'd, they'd mail you a catalog. And I ordered 12 long sleeve white t-shirts and I printed the fat logo on those and I sold them to my friends. And when I sold those, I took the money from the 12 and I bought 24 the next time. Then I bought 24 more with hats and I just kept, you know, accelerating this. And I did all this out of my mom's basement. And over the course of a year from 16 to 17, this is all I did. I wasn't really caught up in money, you know, back then money to me was still almost like a foreign thing. I didn't understand. It was very difficult and very rare in my life, but what I needed money for was to be able to go snowboard. I needed new board, new jackets, you know, every year you'd have to get a season pass or buy lift tickets. So that's all my clothing line was there to do was to fulfill what my end goal was, which I wanted to be a pro snowboarder. But that clothing line actually did really well. I'd travel around and I'd sell my clothes on the way to the snowboard uh, resorts. And at that point I was driving to New Hampshire and, you know, I had friends that we'd hop in the car and go to Vermont. So we'd stop at a bunch of snowboard shops and I would then show them my clothing line and many of them would take them in on consignment. And then the next time I was out, I would collect the money and then they would place orders. So this is kind of how the whole thing happened. I knew nothing about business, but in school, now I was in high school, I had a, a teacher. I remember it was a 10th grade, ninth and 10th grade. My accounting teacher saw something in me, saw that I was trying to build this company and taught me accounting. So now all of a sudden, now I'm actually tracking debits and credits in these giant bookkeeping journals. So I'm learning how to run a business and I'm out there doing what I loved. And my end goal was to be a pro snowboarder. So what I was doing was, you know, fulfilling my dream. And I didn't really think about it, but really sometimes in life, we really should be doing something that has an end means. We don't want to just do something because we have to. So I was actually fulfilling that dream. And at 17, something weird happened. And at 17, I, I had seen enough shops and I'd seen shop owners and they were so happy. They were living their life, their perfect dream. Like they had their store and they'd go snowboard and I, I needed that store. So I started researching it and I found out, okay, I can rent a space, a thousand square foot space in the Lockport mall, small little, you know, local mall. And it would cost me about $70,000 to do this store. Now I had no concept of how much money 70 grand was. I knew it was a lot, but I thought, all right, if I go around and I start asking people for $70,000, somebody's going to give me the money or lender or see my, my vision. Cause it's to me, the vision was so huge and real. Everybody must see this. This is the first time in my life where I realized like, that other people have different, different versions or different outlooks on, you know, what life should be. And everybody told me, no, my dad said, son, you're crazy. Just come get a job at the factory. I'll get you in for an interview, all these things. And I remember almost giving up on this dream. And my mother says to me, she says, you know what, do you really think this is something you can do? And I said, 100% this is going to be huge, blah, blah, blah. I had projections. My accounting teacher had taught me, here's how we do projections. Here's the business plan, which I had learned from Small Business Development Center. Like literally I was, as I you know, would go to a bank and they'd turn me down, they'd say, you need a business plan. Well, what's a business plan? Well, go on, you know, go and look. And at that point, I just figured out how to write one. And all these things materialized, right? So I'm just chasing this dream. And then my mom saw my dream ending and she said, all right, well, what do you need? And I said, well, this bank said I need collateral. All I have is a 1986 Buick. I have a baseball card collection. I have that dirt bike in the garage. That was about my assets and it wasn't enough. And she said, well, what if, can you ask him if I put this house on the line as collateral so that you can 
built, you know, do fat man board chops. And at 17 years old, November of 19, well, it was before this, but November of 1994, fat man board shops became a reality. And my mother's house was on the line if I failed. So that was how I entered the world of being an entrepreneur. Were your parents together at the time? Absolutely not. My dad left when he was, I was, I think it was five years old. Okay. What was yeah, his my mom take, never remarried. What was his take on, because it sounds like, I mean, is your mom really a driving force in you growing up and your father at least didn't have uh, the same thought that you could do it. What was his take when he actually saw this company opening up and some sort of success? You know, I, I like to believe that he was proud. I, I probably wasn't talking to my dad much at that point. Okay. You know, when my dad um, didn't believe in my dreams, a lot of things happened. I sent him, uh, I was kind of a rebellious kid. I sent him a cassette tape, just showing my age, of Cats in the Cradle. And I don't think me and my dad talked for about two years. So I think this was that period of time where I really didn't see my dad much. So I don't know what he thought. I mean, later, my dad was proud of me. And, you know, like, you know, he definitely supported it after he saw it working. But I mean, you know, for, for anyone listening, you know, the most important thing is, is if someone's going to believe in you, they're going to believe in you before you've made it. Okay. When someone, when you've made it, everybody gets in line to believe in you. Oh, I knew you'd make it. No, you didn't. You were the first person telling me that I couldn't do this. You were the person saying that's a stupid idea. You were the first person saying I should get a job at Del at Harrison Radiator. Like then all of a sudden they're like, I knew you'd make it. Well, maybe you did, but you didn't show me the support that I needed. You see influence, you know, hope is the most powerful thing on earth. And sometimes a kid like me, when I was starting, that's all I needed, man. I just needed someone to believe in me. I just needed hope and life you know, you get kicked around. People, you know, want to steal that from you. They want to steal your hope because they didn't fulfill their life dreams. They didn't follow their dream. They gave up on their dream. And let me just, let me go one other thing. Cause now you're getting me fired up on this. Um, I have studied this in nauseating detail. And I have come to the conclusion that the difference between success and failure is very simple. It results in one thing. And we're not even talking about money folks. Like we'll get to the money thing in a bit, but if you went around and, and Earl Nightingale did this and he, he talked about a study where they took 120 year olds and they asked 120 year olds if they were going to be successful at the age of retirement. Every one of those retire, every one of those optimistic, eager 20 year olds said yes. Now think of a 20 year old. They're all ready to conquer the world. So all of them said yes. But if we fast forward to 65 and we look at the statistics from Social Security, what you'll find is that out of those 100 eager and optimistic 20-year-olds that all said they were going to be successful, and some of them were even mad that you even asked them, by 65, only five of them, only five are going to be financially successful. The other 95 or 95% of all the people out there are not financially successful. And why? The answer is so blatantly simple. The five that made it, the five that were at different levels of financial success, only one of them was wealthy. What did they do different than the 95? Simple. Write it down. No, they created something. They created their financial futures. They created their dream. They never gave up on their dream. The other 95, yeah, and maybe they wrote it down, but the other 95, you know what they did? Conformed. They conformed to somebody else's ideologies of what life should be. They got kicked down somewhere and someone said, oh, this is what you should be doing. Oh, you're doing it all wrong. And they believed and, and found you know, comfort or whatever you want to call it in somebody else telling them what their life should be. I've always been a creator. I've, I've 
wanted to quit so many times in my life. And sometimes I think I did actually quit, but I, I kind of regained and got back on the horse. But the difference with the success and failure, and I guess I'm living proof is nothing more than successful people create unsuccessful people in any realm. I don't care if it's financially or living their dreams or just not happy personally, they conformed to somebody else's ideologies of what life should be. And uh, I just never, ever was willing to conform. There, there was a, a, another study and uh, I mean, I forgot who, who it was, but it was MBAs. And it was similar kind of thing of like a lot of them said that they're going to do it after, after college, after getting their MBA. And uh, the majority of them, I think it was like, ended up like being 10% or something like that. It was a very minimal, minimal number, but they were, it was based off of them actually visioning and putting in paper what they were going to do and how they're going to get there instead of just going by the hip. And I, it's, it's, I mean, I think those both things coincide greatly creating something, having a vision for it and going after, after your passion. Um, do you think, how do you, I mean, I'm assuming you probably thought about it multiple times. How do you think your, your life would have transitioned out if you didn't have your mom in the court? Cause you brought up your mom multiple other times. I mean, she, she shaped basically the way it seems like at least how you, you vision, you do, you succeed. So have you thought about that? No, I'd probably like tear up if I thought about, you know, what life would have been like without mom, because mom's always been my rock. She's always been my unconditional one. She never had anything, yeah. you know, never had anything physical or, you know, never had resources to give to me. And a lot of people result that in like a good relationship when someone can give you things. She never had that, but she always taught me to believe in myself, to push through. And she just, she, you know, there's so many times in my life when I've been, you know, when I've lost it all, I've lost it all twice in my life in 2008 and again in 14. And, uh, you know, during the second time, 14, I was in a really bad place. It was the lowest point in my life. And I think this is the first time in my life that my mother literally started trying to get me to conform to, you know, why can't you just be satisfied? Why can't you just be happy with this? Why can't you just, you know, work, you know, a normal job as a financial advisor and forget all this real estate, forget all this, you know, big dream stuff. You know, why can't you just be content and happy? You know, God just wants you to be happy, you know, and, and I started believing this and I almost did, you know, I was almost like, yeah, mom, you're right. You know what? This is all just a big pipe dream. I'm should never just be thinking this big. I should just be normal, but I don't know what it is. There's something inherently in me, and I don't know exactly what it is or why it is, that never, ever was willing to just accept that enough is enough. And, you know, I'm not trying to say that that's an ego thing or like, a, you know, anything else, because I'm not motivated by money. I teach money, but money is a tool. This, this stuff that we, you know, try to put so much emphasis on money that we work so hard for that we say, oh, this is the, this is, we need more money. Money's just a tool. It's like the shovel in your garage. When you want a hole in the backyard, what do you do? You grab a shovel, spade shovel, and you go dig a hole. Money's nothing different. It's a tool that you use to get the things you want. But the biggest mistake I made all, almost all of my life until like I literally in the last six years, my whole life was spent trying to do things, build things, you know, create things for me, for me. It was always for some end goal of me, whether it was a dirt bike or I wanted a, a big faster car or I wanted another Audi or I wanted a bigger house. Right? It goes me, 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 me. And every time in my life, and I made a lot of money as an advisor, but every single time when I'd get to that level of success where like it started becoming about things and my ego would get in the way and, oh, I've got money, like oh, blah, blah, blah. 
I lost it all every time. I don't know why certain things would happen that I wasn't ready for, that I didn't plan for, and it all went away. It was taken away, probably intentionally. I, I truly believe everything happens for a reason. And then I had a mentor. I was in California. I spent five grand to go to this event, this mastermind. I did, didn't, and I did not have five grand. I maxed the credit card out and I was sick about it. I was sick to death. I'm like, I was literally going to this event broken, destitute, not knowing why I was going to the event, but just knowing I had to be there to be around these people. And I think deep down in my head, because I was an advisor, I'm thinking, okay, if I go there, I could probably find somebody to do business with. that will make me at least five grand and that'll cover the cost. But the, the guy that put the event on, I remember going up to him and I was so lost at this event. I'm around like the founder of Ugg Boots, the guy that created Make-A-Wish. I mean, big, big names, celebrities. And I'm just this little guy lost and I said to him, I said, Greg, I, I need you to give me your best advice. And he leans in and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, I'm going to give you the best advice I can give anyone. And I'm like, oh my God, thank you. Because I, I like getting him was tough, getting time with him. And he says, here it is. Give your best stuff away for free. <laughs> Man, I remember hearing that. And I, I'm thinking, dude, I just spent five grand to come out here. My last <laughs> five grand, five grand I didn't even have. And that's what you got for me. Give your best stuff away for free. And immediately I'm thinking, well, if I give my best stuff away for free, what, what, what are they going to want? Like I, I got nothing else. And he says, that's what everybody says. And the exact opposite will happen. If you give your best stuff away for free, people will respect you. Some people will never need you because you gave them everything they needed, but other people will respect you and they will become loyal to you and they will follow you and they will do pretty much anything you have going on. They will become your, your team, your group. You know, he was into culture. Well, at that moment, I started really thinking about it and I started doing this. You know, it's hard. You give everything away for free. You're not making any money, scraping ends. And I remember as I started doing that, I started making more money. And then as I kept giving and giving and giving and doing and doing for others and solving other people's problems, even in, in the financial world, because this is going back then, I stopped doing financial advising the way I used to always go on every appointment. I got to sell something. I got to sell something. I got to sell something because I need money. I got bills to pay. And I started going to appointments like, I wonder how I can help this person. I wonder how I can, I'd really intently look at their situation and try to find flaws in their plan and try to find ways we could make their plan better, even if it meant me not selling something, even if it meant me just giving them advice, simple advice that would just put them on course. I started doing that. It was very hard because my income went down. I'll never forget that year, 2016. My income fell significantly in the financial advisory world. I, I went from a commission-based advisor over to the RIA world, which you know was a, for those of you in that world, you understand, but I started just fee-based advising. And I went from making hundreds of thousands to making barely $40,000. Imagine how hard that is, right? You're used to making hundreds of thousands of dollars as a commission-based salesperson, call them financial advisors because I had all the licenses. Now you're still the financial advisor. Nothing really changed except for now you're a fiduciary focused on just what the client needs and on just solving the client's problems. And your income drops to $40,000. It's a culture shock and it's also a reality shock. But I just knew that that was the path I needed to be on. And I'd seen other advisors that were senior to me, you know, much older, and they'd all told me the exact same success path. It's going to be hard. You're going to reset. You're going to have a year of rebuilding. But eventually, once you rebuild, you're going to have clients. You're going to have an income that you're not going to have to keep working for. You're not going to have to keep selling products. And you're going to be doing the right thing. And you're going to be looked at in this industry at a much higher level. 
And I started doing that. And that's when everything changed. It's the craziest thing. And I don't know how to explain it, but I started doing this. And at first it sucked. At first income was really tough. I wasn't making any money, but then slowly but surely I started making more. And then things started getting easier and I wasn't trying to make money. And then all of a sudden money just started coming in from various sources, places I didn't think money would come from. Fast forward up to today, I make a ton of money, millions of dollars, but I don't do it for the money. And I don't brag that I make millions of dollars because I'll tell you the money I make, I, I find ways to get rid of it as quick as possible. I try to move my money. I constantly keep my little green dollars here moving because I never let these things sit. I used to let my money sit. I'd leave it in 401ks. I'd have equity in my house and I would just leave my money sitting in the rafters. And that's not what the wealthy do. The wealthy have figured out that you can only work so hard and you can only work so many hours a day. It's a level fixed game. There's only so much somebody can work when it comes to hours for dollars. But when you change it and you start working smarter, some call it, and you start making your money work for you, you all of a sudden can focus on bigger picture things. Rockefeller said it, you know, too many people are so busy making money that they have no time to actually build wealth. And he said it differently than that. But basically, so many people are so focused on the day in and day out grind of making money that they never reach their levels because they didn't focus on what does it actually take to become wealthy? How do you become wealthy? Well, you don't do it by trading hours for dollars. You do it by becoming resourceful and you do it by actually learning secrets of the wealthy and how to make your money move and make your money work for you that your money has no limits, no potent, no untapped potential. It will go out there and work as hard as you make it work. That's what. Do you, I mean, you've had the highs, you've had the lows and you've, you brought it up before that you're not sure really why you still push even when basically. Oh, I'm so pretty big. sure. Oh, you know, you know, mm -hmm. what's your, what's your why? Yeah, my why is to help a lot more people because I get so much joy when I do a call or I talk to somebody or I do a mastermind and I actually help somebody truly find the answer. We just had a mastermind here and there was this one guy and you know, he said, you literally showed me something that will change my life forever. And like for me, like what I showed him folks was nothing fancy, but sometimes like what we take for granted, what I take for granted is just common sense. But for somebody else, it's that missing piece. It's that simple but they just couldn't put the puzzle together. And let me, let me tell another story. So this, this will explain my why in the simplest way I can. And this comes from a book. There was a father who spent a lot of time like working and didn't spend enough time with his son. And he had a morning ritual. He'd get up and he'd read the paper and drink his coffee. And one day his son came up to him early in the morning and said, dad, dad, you know, we never spend any time together. Can we play ball? Can we go, you know, and spend a whole day together? I want to spend a whole day with you, dad. And the father instantly had regret and remorse. And the father put the paper down and said, absolutely, son, when do you we're like, let's do Saturday. Saturday, we'll spend the entire day together. So Saturday comes, the father gets up even earlier so he can get through his morning routine, read the paper, but he's reading the paper, just getting into a great article. And his, his son gets up way earlier than ever. Comes over, dad, dad, I'm ready to go. Let's, let's go play. Let's spend the day together. And the father's like, crap, I'm, I got to finish this article. So quick thinking, dad, he says, okay, great. We're going to start the day in the house and then we're going to go out and we're going to play the rest of the day. He rips out of the paper, a picture of the world. There's a you know, an article in there and it's just got a picture of the world and he tears it up into a whole bunch of little pieces and he puts it on the glass table and mixes it all around and says, son, what we're going to do first is let's put this puzzle together. And as soon as we're done putting this puzzle together, we're going to go outside and we're going to play the rest of the day. And the son's all excited. He's got this challenge and he starts playing, you know, putting the puzzle together and the father goes back to reading the paper. 
<laughs> well, the father thought this would take the son a long time where he'd have enough time to finish his paper and go through his routine. And in no time flat, the son says, dad, dad, I finished it. Like, check it out. And the father puts the paper down. You know, I'll just kind of do this. Father puts the paper down and looks and there it is. The puzzle, this torn up world was all put back together. And the father says to the son, he says, son, how did you, how did you put this puzzle together that fast? That that's almost impossible. How did you do it? And the, and the kid says, you know, dad, at first I was trying to do it and I couldn't figure it out. It was such a, a mess. I almost gave up. And then a piece fell on the floor and I went down to grab the piece and I look up and remember it's a glass table. And on the other side of all these torn up pieces of this world, he looks up and he says, and on the other side, I saw a picture of a man and I figured, all right, all I need to do is put the man together. And when the man is put together, the world will take shape. So all that boy did is from under the table, looking up, put the man together. And when the man was put together, the world was complete. I'm trying to put the man together, me being the man. And in doing that, to put me together, I have to put the world together and I have to help people. Now, I can't help people with everything, okay? But what I absolutely can do is change the way people look at money, handle money, and actually move their money and, and put them in control of something that they've been taught their whole life to give up control of. And if I can succeed in that one goal, I don't care if it takes me an entire lifetime, I'll never stop. And as I make more money, I just take more money and I just keep putting it back in to help more and more and more people. There it is. It's that simple, man. You've had the, again, the, the highs and lows where you've lost, you've talked about it a couple of times where you lost it in, I think 2008 and 2014, right? Um, is there any piece of advice that you could give your younger self? Maybe that one that that entrepreneur that built his first store, any advice you'd give them today that might have I mean helped you later on in life? Yeah, there's a couple of pieces, but I think the one thing, if I really had that opportunity to go back to my younger self and give that advice, I probably would have told my younger self to start giving earlier. I think when I was younger and I was strapped for money, I always thought when I have money, I'll give. When I have money, I'll help. You know, my mom struggled her whole life. And, you know, like I never helped mom financially until recently where I give her a paycheck every week. Now, you know, I could have done that earlier. I could have gave more to more people much earlier. But I always thought, oh, I got to have a certain level of money and then I can start giving. And that's backwards. If you if you wait, you'll never, ever you know, give as much as you should have. So that'd probably be the biggest advice I'd give. There's lots of other little things, you know, that I know someday when I'm on my, you know, final resting ground or final resting bed, you know, where I, I'm taking my last breaths, there's going to be a lot of regrets. And those regrets are going to be, I worked too much. I didn't spend enough time with my family. I didn't say I love you enough. You know, just all those things that I think a lot of people live with regret. But the one thing I try to do in this life is make sure that I don't regret doing the things that I, I, I should do at least at this point in my life, so that I don't ever look back and be like, boy, I regret not going to Hawaii. Boy, I regret not surfing, you know, out there in Dominican or whatever. All those like little things that I want to do, I find a way to do them, but I find a way to do them in a capacity where when I do them, I'm also giving something. And uh, sometimes that's like the fun part. You go on a trip and yeah, in the back of my mind, I'm going because I want to surf. But I go out there to teach at an event for free just because that gives me that ability to give at that event. Then I feel fulfilled. Then my surfing experience is that much better. Hmm. So you you figure out what you want to do, let's say, in a year or two years from now, and then you try to build a program or build some way of how to give while you're there? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah.
And that's, and then, that's a lot of different things that we do. And, you know, we do events all over the place and I speak at places all over the place. And a lot of times when I go out there, I'm never, you know, very rarely am I ever speaking at an event with anything to sell. I'm just teaching people what I've learned. I'm teaching people the path that I went and I followed to get where I'm at. And then if people need help, yes, do we have ways to help them? Certainly. But I'm not on that stage with the intent to be there to sell. And what I've found that if I do that, people will, will need what I have or need what I can teach them. So if they want to, then they seek me out. makes for a much better dynamic because I, I'm not selling something. When you're selling something, you're always in a position of weakness. You're trying to find some angle. But when you go without the intent to sell anything and you just go with the, the whole gratitude thing, I'm there because I want to give. It's funny because tons of people want to then work with you. And I don't know, that's just something I wish I learned a lot earlier. If someone's listening right now and they want to work with you, they want to basically I mean, go to your website, go to one of your programs, maybe go to one of the masterminds. What's the best platform for them to, to follow your journey? And it's super easy. So I won't even talk to somebody if they don't watch a free 90 minute video or it's a 10 part video series, if they will, because I had to do that back in 2014 when I was at the lowest point in my life. I was looking for that secret, that one thing. And I figured it out, but I didn't understand it. And I wanted this guy to help me. And he said, hey, before we can talk, you have to watch this 90-minute video. And that never left me. So I literally recreated a 90-minute video and, it, or, and I broke it into a 10-part series. And someone who watches that, it's not a sales video, just teaches you one of the biggest secrets of the wealthy. So you watch that 90-minute video, and then we jump on a call and we talk about your money problems and how we can help you solve them in one capacity or the other. And sometimes it's simple. Let's just do this, 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 and you don't need me for anything. I'll just point you in the right direction. Love it. Well, hopefully uh, anyone and everyone that's listening uh, can go onto that platform. I know myself, I'm, once we get off this call, I'm going to get that link and uh, schedule time for, for myself to watch that. So I appreciate Chris uh, for you being on here. Thank you for, for all your insight. Thank you for your positivity and, and thank you for your mom for, for guiding you so we could have you on the podcast here. So I appreciate, appreciate everything. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, everyone, uh, please go check out Chris. Please subscribe to this podcast. And uh, you guys have a great one. On to the next podcast. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.